Hi, it's Richard. All of us at Parcast want to thank you for your continuing support throughout the year. Parcast couldn't be what it is today without you. We also wanted to give you a heads up that we're taking a break for the holidays and won't be back until after the new year. But since the season is all about giving, we do have something special lined up for the next two weeks. So be sure to tune in. In the meantime, enjoy the season, and we'll be back the first week of January with your regular programming. Have a happy and safe new year. Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's reign, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. From the outside, the three-story concrete building in South Phnom Penh was unremarkable. There was a bright green lawn out front graced with several trees. It wouldn't look out of place on a college campus. And in fact, it once was a school. But starting in 1975, it had a far darker purpose. On the orders of Pol Pot, Cambodia's ruthless dictator, the building was christened Security Prison 21. Colloquially, it was known as Tool Slang, or the Hill of Poisonous Trees. And it was used as a massive torture chamber. Suspected enemies of Pol Pot and his Communist Party were brought into the school's halls and tortured until they admitted spying for the CIA, the KGB, the Vietnamese, or all three. The tortures could be as unimaginative as beatings or as outlandish as mechanical pumps that drained all the blood from victims' bodies. While they were still alive. By the end of S-21's run, over 20,000 people passed through its doors. Most of them never made it out alive. And it was only one of almost 200 similar detention centers. Pol Pot had a, quote, glorious vision for Cambodia's future. And if anyone was even suspected of disagreeing, they had to be eliminated. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Richard. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring 20th century dictatorships in China and Cambodia. During the first half of the century, Mao Zedong and Pol Pot rose to power on a tide of anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist sentiment. But once in power, their attempt to create a communist paradise resulted in death, destruction, and terror. This is our second episode on Cambodian dictator Pol Pot and the final episode of the season. Last week, we explored his rise from a humble schoolteacher and secret Marxist revolutionary to the leader of Democratic Kampuchea, or Communist Cambodia. This week, we'll learn how he effectively turned Cambodia into a slave state and how it all came crumbling down thanks to the very policies Pol Pot forced on his country. Coming up, Pol Pot's sickening power trip. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Smoke hung heavy in the sky as Pol Pot soldiers entered Phnom Penh on April 17, 1975. The city breathed a sigh of relief. The five-year civil war that had killed 500,000 Cambodians was finally over. The winning side was the Communist Party of Kampuchea, or the CPK, more popularly known as the Khmer Rouge in honor of the red scarves they wore. But the Khmer Rouge soldiers didn't all look like winners. Many were peasants from Cambodia's mountainous regions and had never seen a city before. Modern life confused them. They were filthy from fighting and didn't understand urban habits. They drank out of toilet bowls thinking they were wells. They were suspicious of food or drink in bottles or cans, yet willingly drank motor oil and ate toothpaste, thinking they were food. But the real trouble on the winning side lay not with its countryside soldiers, but with its leader, Pol Pot. Pol Pot had studied the works of Mao and Stalin, and he was convinced that for a revolution to be truly effective, all resistance must be smoked out and crushed. The executions began almost immediately. The first to die was the ousted regime's prime minister. Several other high-ranking Republican figures soon joined him. Pol Pot's goal was to establish perhaps the most radically communist government the world had ever seen. One that didn't just uplift the peasantry, but forced everyone in the country to become a peasant. To that end, on the very afternoon that his soldiers entered the city, Pol Pot ordered Phnom Penh emptied of inhabitants. All two million of them. The pretense was that the Americans, who had been mercilessly bombing Cambodia since the conclusion of the Vietnam War, were going to launch a raid on the capital. But it was a lie. In reality, Pol Pot worried that Cambodia's cities were a hotbed of anti-communist thought. He also correctly figured that it would be much more difficult for Western spies to operate without anyone in the capital. 
Cambodia's CIA chief would later admit that his entire intelligence apparatus was neutralized when Pol Pot evacuated Phnom Penh. But that didn't mean the operation was an all-around success. The exodus was a fiasco from the start. In a pattern that would be repeated throughout Pol Pot's entire rule, he acted with almost no planning. There was nowhere for the evacuees to stay during their march through the countryside. No food, no transportation, and no medical aid. April is Cambodia's hottest month, and many civilians suffered from heat exhaustion. Those who could no longer keep walking were killed. They were forced to march hundreds of miles to new farming cooperatives. Soldiers and CPK officials chose who went where. The new peasants had no say in the matter. The exodus also doubled as a highly effective way to screen nearly a quarter of Cambodia's population for former government officials, and thus people Pol Pot viewed as potential threats. At checkpoints along the road, soldiers would ask all government officials to come forward. The ruse was that they were being asked to help the new government to rebuild Phnom Penh. In reality, they were dragged off into the jungle to be killed. In the end, upward of 20,000 people died in the evacuation. And Pol Pot was just getting started. Once the capital was emptied, Pol Pot's peasantification could begin. His goal was to make Cambodia completely self-sufficient by building an economy on the backs of rice farms. The plan was to mechanize farming within 10 years and then to industrialize within 20 years. It wasn't a terrible plan. Pot wanted to construct a vast network of irrigation canals to increase rice yields. And many independent Western observers claimed that it was a praiseworthy initiative. But what they might not have approved of were the methods he used, like forced labor. In essence, Pol Pot transformed Cambodia into a slave state. The only people who were allowed to make meaningful choices were party members. Everyone else did as they were told, or paid the price. Money was outlawed. There were no markets, and bartering was heavily discouraged. What's worse, the enforcement of these rules was often arbitrary. Many of the decisions were made by the village authorities and soldiers on the ground. Therefore, in some regions, you might just be assigned extra work for bartering. In others, you'd be dragged out into the jungle and killed. The population was divided into three groups. Full rights members, candidates, and depositees. Full rights members were usually lower-class peasants. They got their rations first and were allowed to occupy political posts. Candidates got their rations second and could hold minor offices. Depositees had no rights, could hold no office, and received their food last from the communal kitchens. There was another classification as well. People from the early liberated areas, who were under Pol Pot's rule before the fall of Phnom Penh, were called base people. Everyone else was called new people. Base people were allowed to grow their own crops and were punished lightly for ideological infractions. New people were treated as little more than enemies. 
In April of 1975, when the new peasants were struggling to adjust to their radically new lives, 50-year-old Pol Pot traveled abroad. He signed a preliminary treaty with Vietnam, which established close ties between the countries. And on June 21st, Pol Pot even met Mao Zedong. Mao was fascinated by Pol Pot's ideological fervor. He presciently warned the Cambodian leader that though his goals were just, they were dangerously unrealistic. He also warned Pot not to be so heavy-handed when dealing with his enemies. Quite the warning coming from Mao, who was no stranger to the heavy hand. Nevertheless, Pol Pot's trip was a success. China agreed to send Cambodia aid, technical training, and military supplies, all in exchange for a secure alliance. China didn't trust the new Vietnam and wanted to use Cambodia as a forward operating base. The hope was that despite Pot's other alliance with Vietnam, China's involvement with Cambodia would limit Vietnam's hegemony over Southeast Asia. The international alliances were secured. And with that, Pol Pot was ready to turn his attention inward to his experimental new slave state. For example, he created a national quota of three tons of rice per hectare. The goal was to use more rice output to grow the population by several million, and thus bring Cambodia's size closer to Vietnam's. Unfortunately, the plan was wrought with issues from the start. Cambodia could never grow that much rice without chemical fertilizer, which it lacked. So, unable to meet the quotas, party officials did two things. They barely gave the peasants underneath them anything to eat, and they lied about the crop yields they supervised. Because of these lies, the government took a large part of the peasants' already meager rations for national stockpiles, leaving the majority of the country either extremely malnourished or outright starving. Unfortunately, it was the beginning of a pattern. These rice quotas were the root of an endless cycle of famine and repression that would typify Pol Pot's rule. Although technically, Prince Sihanouk was still the head of the government, at least as far as he knew. Prince Sihanouk had been waiting out the war in Beijing. Now that Phnom Penh had fallen, in September he felt comfortable returning to Cambodia. But unbeknownst to him, Pol Pot and the CPK had secretly drafted a new constitution dissolving the monarchy. They needn't have bothered. Sihanouk toured the countryside, saw the state of the peasantry, and said, My people had been transformed into cattle. My eyes were open to a madness which neither I nor anyone else had imagined. On March 10, 1976, he officially resigned as the head of state and tried to go to China for quote-unquote medical reasons. But now that he was getting comfortable with his new all-powerful position, Pol Pot wouldn't allow it. He denied the request. Sihanouk was now a prisoner in the very country he used to rule. Which meant that Pol Pot was now publicly and visibly more than just a revolutionary. He was Cambodia's leader. 
But if Cambodians hoped that this new status meant Pol Pot was going to rule more kindly and wisely in the future, they were dead wrong. Coming up, Pol Pot's paranoia and purges lead to his downfall. Hi there, it's Kate. If you haven't had a chance to check out the entertaining new podcast, Blind Dating, now's the time to binge what you've missed before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. In this Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Join host Tara Michelle as she introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio will get to know one another without the distraction of appearances. But once the cameras are turned on, is personality still enough for these strangers to fall for each other? Or will they say farewell? Connect with new episodes of Blind Dating every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1976, 51-year-old Pol Pot had implemented the majority of the policies that, in his mind, would transform Cambodia into a thriving modern nation. There was just one problem. The policies weren't working. He believed he had solved the country's agricultural problem by implementing strict quotas. Why, then, were people starving? Why were freshly built dams collapsing? Why was the economy in shambles? There was only one rational solution. Traitors and sabotage. People who, quote, question the stance of independence mastery and self-reliance. As if to confirm his fevered paranoia, a series of unexplained events occurred in early 1976. A munitions dump exploded in February. On April 2nd, a grenade exploded outside the royal palace. And then... An aide died after tasting Pol Pot's food before he had taken a bite. Someone was trying to kill him. Pol Pot immediately suspected the Vietnamese, who had reunified their country that July. Outwardly, he sent them congratulations. Secretly, he began to make preparations for war. But Pol Pot was also certain that his government was full of traitors. So he fabricated proof that these traitors existed. The logic was that with the fabricated proof, he could arrest suspected traitors, and then he could torture them until they confessed. He sent his secret police to round up anyone who was not an anti-Vietnam hardliner, as well as anyone who didn't have a so-called revolutionary mindset. Among his first victims were a general and six of the general's associates. They were black-bagged and sent to S-21, 
one of many new security prisons established throughout the country. After four months of torture, the general, quote, admitted he was part of a fantastically vast conspiracy theory aimed at killing most of the CPK leadership. He implicated several other party officials who were arrested and tortured. They, in turn, implicated even more party officials. This process continued ad infinitum. Pol Pot wasn't completely delusional. He knew that most confessions obtained under torture were false. Therefore, the CPK adopted a solution of a sort. Nothing would be done unless someone was accused three times. In Pol Pot's mind, these leadership purges weren't just necessary. They were a good thing. The people who didn't believe in his socialist revolution were the same people who wanted to ease tensions with Vietnam. They weren't radicals, and they deserved death. It's an idea he held on to throughout his reign. In the first half of 1976, 400 people entered S-21. In the second half, there were more than a thousand. By the spring of 1977, S-21 was processing a thousand new victims a month. But if the purpose of the purges was rooting out disloyalty, they had just the opposite effect. Pol Pot was becoming more unpopular by the day. The peasants hated him for his regime's cruelty. Party members hated him for his mercurial justice. But Pol Pot wasn't paying attention to his reputation at home because, once again, his attention was being monopolized by international politics. Mao Zedong died on September 9, 1976. Democratic Kampuchea declared a formal period of mourning. Meanwhile, Vietnam was getting increasingly frustrated with its neighbor. Refugees were fleeing the Cambodian countryside in droves, and many of them were heading west to Vietnam. On top of that, clashes with Cambodian troops along the border were increasing in both frequency and severity, likely thanks to local leaders who wanted to prove their loyalty to Pol Pot, since every Cambodian knew he was anti-Vietnamese. The Vietnamese wanted to return the refugees to Cambodia, despite the horror stories they told, and they wanted to renew the friendship treaty between the two countries. Cambodia rejected them on both counts. There was a method to Cambodia's madness. Pol Pot and the country at large never trusted Vietnam, who they saw as their ancestral arch-nemesis. In the Cambodian mind, it was always only a matter of time until Vietnam attacked. Therefore, Pol Pot wanted to show his neighbor that Cambodia would not only stand up and fight, but they would do so more viciously than Vietnam could ever fathom. The idea was that if they acted crazy enough, Vietnam might leave them alone. To punctuate his point, Pol Pot sent soldiers over the border on April 30, 1977. They destroyed several villages and murdered hundreds of Vietnamese civilians, including women and children, in brutal ways. The Vietnamese retaliated with bombing raids. Things were spiraling out of control at an alarming rate. And so naturally, foreign powers began to involve themselves in the conflict. 
China had a vested interest in remaining Southeast Asia's preeminent power, and they worried that if Cambodia fell to Vietnam, they would lose that status. They had propped up Pol Pot since his rise to power, and they were worried his bellicose attitude would end his regime before it really began. Hua Guofeng, the Chinese premier, was also worried that Vietnam was a Soviet puppet, and he didn't want the USSR to establish a sphere of influence in Southeast Asia either. Eventually, China would get the U.S. to take an interest in the conflict for this reason as well. And in fact, Vietnam realized that allying with the Soviets might just be their ticket to success. The alliance immediately yielded results. The Soviets sent their new friends weapons, ammunition, and other aid. Vietnam began to train Cambodian refugees, forging them into an anti-Khmer Rouge force that was loyal to Hanoi. Finally, things were looking good for Vietnam. And despite China's support, they were looking distinctly bad for Pol Pot. By the spring of 1978, the dictator was beginning to see just how bad his position was. His attempt to protect his country from Vietnam had just caused Vietnam to become more aggressive. And internally, Cambodia was on the edge of disaster too. People were starving. Leadership was chaotic, weak, and disorganized thanks to constant purges. Though he would never admit publicly that he did anything wrong, Privately, Pol Pot confessed that his policies had failed Cambodia. He couldn't ignore government reports that up to 30% of the population was malnourished. In an effort to alleviate the peasants' suffering, he softened many of the country's hardline communist policies. Foraging was again permitted. The distinction between base and new people was abolished, and everyone now had full rights. But in typical Khmer Rouge fashion, Pol Pot accompanied these changes with his largest purge to date. Tens of thousands of dissidents were murdered in secret interrogation rooms or throughout the jungle. Pol Pot also expanded from targeting party officials and village leaders to soldiers and their commanders. And then entire villages. Any village he suspected of showing pro-Vietnamese sentiments was slaughtered wholesale. Years later, when many of these villagers returned home, they found the jungle literally covered with bones. But in the meantime, it led some soldiers to defect and launch guerrilla campaigns against the Khmer Rouge. It was the first instance of open revolt against Pol Pot's rule. The country was falling apart faster and faster. Military leaders estimated that they were spending upwards of 60% of their manpower dealing with internal enemies. Pol Pot's purges would ultimately take the lives of up to 250,000 people that we know of. The true number of dead will probably never be known. But the end was finally coming. The hammer finally fell on December 25, 1978, when the Vietnamese launched a diversionary assault in northeast Cambodia before committing 60,000 troops to a main assault in the south. 
The Cambodians were ill-prepared. Defenses had fallen by the wayside in favor of purges. And then Pol Pot completely ignored China's advice to resist the Vietnamese with guerrilla tactics. This was a catastrophic mistake. His forces were outnumbered by at least two to one at every point on the front. The Vietnamese forces penetrated deep into the country and made swift progress toward the capital. But Pol Pot, who had spent the majority of his reign spouting lies, didn't change tactics now. He claimed he was allowing the Vietnamese to enter Cambodia so he could encircle and then crush them. He also lied about where the enemy forces were, even to his own military commanders. Some of them were surprised when Vietnamese soldiers suddenly arrived at their headquarters. But however many times he denied the reality, the Vietnamese army marched on. By January of 1979, Chinese technicians working at a rubber plantation in Cambodia radioed Beijing saying there was basically no more army. These technicians, along with other Chinese nationals, were airlifted back to China on January 6th. Sihanouk, who had been completely sidelined during the entirety of Pol Pot's reign, was with them. On January 7th, as the Vietnamese closed in on the capital, Pol Pot and many of the CPK leaders secretly fled the city and back to the jungle near the Thai border, where Pol Pot had started his revolution years before. They left 40,000 peasants, factory workers, and bureaucrats behind in Phnom Penh without leadership. But they may not have minded. Most Cambodians were disgusted with the Khmer Rouge by now. A CPK official later said simply, they hated us. They just wanted us gone. But if they were done with Pol Pot, Pol Pot wasn't done with them. He would spend the better part of the next 15 years fighting a jungle campaign against the Vietnamese. For the Khmer Rouge, the war had only just begun. Coming up, Pol Pot's slow, ignominious slide into defeat and the dark impact of his years in power. Now, back to the story. By the start of 1979, all but the westernmost stretches of Cambodia were under Vietnamese rule. Pol Pot was back in the jungle, yet he refused to admit defeat, even if it meant a long, slow, and unsuccessful struggle with a small guerrilla force. China did step in and throw a bone to its longtime ally in the form of a punitive expedition against Vietnam on February 17, 1979. 85,000 soldiers stormed into North Vietnam and laid waste to whatever military and economic infrastructure they came across. By the time they withdrew a month later, Vietnam's already weak economy was crippled. But that was a secondary goal. Their primary objective was to force the Vietnamese to send troops to reinforce the North and give Pol Pot some breathing room on the Cambodian border. The Vietnamese didn't take the bait, however. Instead, they launched a new offensive against Pol Pot's jungle bases. Pol Pot had just hours of warning. He and his cronies barely escaped with their lives. But escape they did. 
In time to watch the Vietnamese loot Cambodia's cities and even dismantle its factories, sending all the booty back to Vietnam. The Vietnamese set up a provisional government in January. Much like under the Khmer Rouge, any new official had to go through lengthy indoctrination sessions. Those who didn't cooperate were imprisoned. The end result was that many Cambodian peasants just gave up and fled the country. The refugees into Thailand grew from 150,000 that October to over 500,000 in December. And Pol Pot and Sihanouk, seeing an opportunity and following the advice of their Chinese allies, grudgingly formed an alliance. By December of 1981, the Communist Party of Kampuchea was no more, becoming the first and only Communist Party to willingly terminate its own existence. In its place was a new united front, one that did its best to separate itself from the past atrocities of the CPK. And not just in name. There was some real reform. Dissidents were now re-educated rather than killed. Followers were allowed to have individual possessions. Captured soldiers were spared and given the choice to join Pol Pot's guerrillas or go home. And Sihanouk was made head of state. But for all the change, the alliance's numbers remained minimal. And when the Vietnamese finally launched an offensive to address their jungle dissidents, they were resoundingly crushed. In December of 1984, Pol Pot was forced to flee to Thailand. And watch as the world changed. In March of 1985, the USSR's Mikhail Gorbachev came to power and cut back Moscow's overseas commitments, including aid to Vietnam. Vietnam, without Soviet backing, no longer had the resources to keep its hold on Cambodia. It took time, but in September of 1989, Vietnam finally withdrew its troops from Cambodia. The Berlin Wall came down shortly thereafter, as did the USSR, and Russia normalized relations with China. It might have been an opportunity for Pol Pot to once more claim center stage in Cambodia. But Vietnam wasn't the only one pulling out of the country. Without the USSR to worry about, the United States and China were much less concerned with Cambodia, and they began withdrawing their support from Pol Pot and his remaining allies. Finally, after decades of conflict, there were no more resources left to keep the fight going. In June of 1991, all the political factions left in Cambodia met and decided that there would be an indefinite ceasefire, including, to his chagrin, Pol Pot. Out of the ashes of the country, a former Khmer Rouge commander and Vietnamese puppet politician emerged as a leader, thanks in part to the vicious mobs of supporters he sent to harass political opponents. Sihanouk's son, Prince Ranrid, also emerged as a significant political player in post-Soviet Cambodia. But Pol Pot did not. Even after his career of atrocities, he still had the backing of about 5% of Cambodians. But that wasn't enough to win elections. So he went back to his old standby, guerrilla warfare. It didn't go well. 
He suffered steady losses throughout the mid-1990s. His health began to fade. He developed a heart problem and required an oxygen tank. He also began to make even more erratic decisions than he had in the past, like executing a popular party leader, Sun Sen, in June of 1997. It was his last great mistake. Another Khmer Rouge commander, fearing his death would come next, rebelled and sent troops to arrest Pol Pot. They held him under house arrest until July, when a Khmer Rouge panel sentenced him to life imprisonment. Which ended up meaning one year. Pol Pot died on April 15, 1998, in his sleep. It was a quiet end for a violent dictator who spilled untold quantities of blood and starved so many more. Pol Pot's influence on Cambodia, unfortunately, lingers on past that quiet death. Hun Sen, the former Khmer Rouge member, is still the country's prime minister. Other former Khmer Rouge members hold various government positions. Cambodia still remains one of the poorest countries in the world and still suffers from crime and corruption. According to the World Justice Project, Cambodia is second to last on its rule of law index, just ahead of Venezuela. Tensions with Vietnam are still high, too. There were border spats between the two nations as recently as 2018. China still supports Cambodia as a way to check Vietnamese expansion almost 30 years after the Cold War's end. Most tragic, however, is what hasn't outlasted Pol Pot's reign, the lives lost thanks to his violent and negligent policies. He was responsible for the deaths of between 1.5 and 2 million Cambodians. That's around a quarter of the country's 1975 population. Things might have been very different if he hadn't purged the people who knew how to manage a state and economy. If he hadn't chosen anti-intellectualism in favor of rigid dogma and illogical policies. He might have actually achieved some of his goals of progress and built a more equal society for all Cambodians. But he didn't. And he will go down in history as one of the most brutal dictators to ever walk the earth. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next week to begin our new season on 20th century Caudillos, starting with Cuba's Fulgencio Batista. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found Pol Pot, Anatomy of a Nightmare by Philip Short to be extremely useful. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Charles Brock, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. 
listeners, there's no better time than right now to open your heart to the hit Spotify original from Parcast, Blind Dating. Every Wednesday, find out if there's more to a love connection than just looks. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.